0: Hey there, welcome to Takeaway with Sam Okus, a podcast from Nation's Restaurant News. I am Sam Okus, Editor-in-Chief here at NRN, and this is the show where I give you an all-access pass to the restaurant industry's most influential decision-makers. This week, I'm talking with Jason Barry, co- co-owner alongside his husband, Michael Regenbogen, of the Washington, D.C.-based restaurant group Need Hospitality and Design, which today has 20 locations across 10 concepts, including Succotash and Mi Vida. NEED is another group finding incredible efficiencies and economies of scale through a broad portfolio of restaurant concepts. But part of the secret to its success is the attention to detail it gives each of its brands, as well as the robust benefits that it offers its team members. Jason joined the podcast to talk about how that creativity and attention to detail come to life in NEED's restaurants plus how the group is strategically growing its geographic footprint, but also its team. In this conversation, you will learn more about why the intersection of dining and eating is a tough but rewarding category, how concept diversification provides a more stable business model, and why paying for extra team benefits up front has a big payout later on. Jumping now into my conversation with Need Hospitality and Design owner, Jason Barry. Also, don't forget to stick around after the interview as I will share my six takeaways from this discussion, actionable insights that you can take with you on the go. I'm here with Jason Barry, the co-founder of Need Hospitality and Design out of Washington, D.C. Jason, thanks so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: All right, so Jason, uh want to get into the story of Need, uh, this group that is soon to be. By the time this this uh publishes, you will be 20 restaurants strong. Um so I want to get into the story of how this group came to be. What what is your origin story? What how how did this group come together originally?
1: Well, it's uh so Need was founded by my uh partner and husband Michael Regenbogen, and myself. Uh so we I both grew up in the industry uh, throughout our careers. Uh, I've been—I'm 51 uh, recently, and so since I was 15 years old, I've worked in food service. Uh, Wendy's was uh, that, one of those first positions, and worked my way up uh, in the industry. So have uh, and Michael uh, also uh, grew up in the industry. He worked uh, waited tables early on and worked in some of the some of the biggest. Uh, most well-known restaurants on the East coast. Uh, and you know, it's, you know, growing up eating out with my dad and, uh, Michael traveling the world with his family when he's originally from Germany, uh, you know, just had a real, have a real passion for hospitality and we like people and we like making them happy. And, uh, as for, fortunately, I don't get to work the floor as much as I used to, uh, which is why I love openings. We're in the middle of an opening right now. So that's pretty cool. Uh, and spending time with the staff and, uh, with the guests, uh, who are, who are going to be coming in pretty soon. Uh, so it's, it's just, uh, it's sort of just been in my blood. Uh, and the industry is, is so interesting, but, uh, has, has been quite the wild ride of a career and, and, you know, you can do so many different things in it and it's been great. So Michael and I founded the company, uh, eight years ago yesterday was a, uh, yesterday was the eighth anniversary of our first location. So, uh, that was a Sekitash restaurant in National Harbor with uh, Edward Lee as our culinary director. Edward uh, a wonderful man and uh, great at Southern food and Korean food. And we opened a Southern restaurant called Sekitash eight years ago. Uh, and it kind of just went from there. Uh, opportunities came along and, you know, we never intended to only be one restaurant. It's, you know, we do have ambition to be successful financially. And uh, I think that's still okay in, in America to say that. Uh, and you know, we knew that we couldn't likely get to be financially successful, uh, with one restaurant, you know, you can live, but restaurants have to be ridiculously successful if you're going to live off one, when you think about the slim margins of this industry and the likelihood of failure is relatively high. Uh, and so, uh, we, you know, I think what's different about what we do is we design concept, create. Uh, raise money and operate our restaurants with our team. And so there's a lot of people in this industry who do some of those things that our they don't necessarily do all of those things. So I think that that keeps us fresh and interesting. And also, we're able to pivot pretty quickly. Uh, We find, you know, first secotash led to the second secotash in downtown DC. And it was a much broader, grander, space than the original, you know, went from 4,000 to 10,000 square feet on three levels from one level. So, you know, we then partnered with uh, a a well-known chef named Roberto Santibanez, uh, who is uh, probably one of the more well-known Mexican cuisine chefs and Mexican chefs on the East Coast. He and I had worked together at uh, Rosa Mexicano, uh, where I worked before Michael and I started our company. And uh, we had always wanted to do a Mexican restaurant together and one location landed in our lap. So we did Mexican and then we... So one thing led to another. Uh, and now we have 10 concepts. Uh, we have 20 locations, which is 10 full-service restaurants, eight fast casuals, and two bakeries. The bakeries we partner with Amber uh, Ahmad uh, out of New York at Mazadar Bakery. Uh, so we have a couple of her... Locations here that we manage together. Uh, So we're in bakeries, we're in fast casual, we're mostly in full service. That's where we spend the most of our time, and that's sort of how we've evolved over the last eight years. And uh, it's been it's been a wild ride. I I handle most of the business, finance, fundraising, a little more of the operations. Uh, Michael does all the design. We concept everything together. We make all the big decisions together. Uh, So it's uh, it's a pretty interesting, unique approach to the industry, I think.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. Um, You know, you talked about that intention for scale. Initially, you knew you wanted this thing to be not just one restaurant, but did you know you wanted multi-concept or did you think we'll open one succotash and then maybe we'll open 20 succotashes? Or was the idea always to diversify your portfolio?
1: Uh, My state of mind nine years ago, uh, you know, I think we, we definitely knew we didn't want one. Mm-hmm. We also didn't know that one would be successful and would need to be doing something different. Right. Cause just because Dash was brand new, it was a new concept. Nobody had ever done it before. We, we came up, my mom came up with the name and we found Edward Lee, who was kind enough to work with two guys that didn't have any restaurants, but had a lot of experience. Uh, and so, you know, what if that relationship had gone South and he was, not a pleasant person to work with well then why would we do more psychotash so you hope for the best but if i had if i can go back to what i was thinking then it was well we'll do one of these see what happens maybe we'll get lucky and do another one Uh, but i think the goal was always to have many of something if not one thing then a bunch of different things that i know we'd have 10 concepts now and i wouldn't advise it i don't think it's a very smart thing to do going into it sort of just happened organically, you know when uh, our landlord uh, approached us in two thousand and seventeen there was a dirt lot in front of the north gate of Nats Park in d c uh, and they were building a 15 story residential you know eight uh, class A residential apartment building with retail literally at the opening of Nats Park in a neighborhood that was fairly run down Crime ridden and being reinvigorated and rejuvenated. We said, yes, there was no building there. Well, we couldn't do a secatash. We already had two. We couldn't do a Mivita; vita. We already had that, and they were all too close to do again. So we had to, if we wanted to do it, we had to come up with something new. And that mm-hmm. restaurant's now called Gatsby and it's an upscale diner and it has a uh, Mazadar bakery uh, as well, that location. So really, it's about. There's an opportunity in front of you. Do you do what you have to make your life easy? You know, or do you do something new? And doing something new is about 10 times harder than doing something you've done before. You know, uh, did you buy the right kitchen equipment? Are the best-selling items the items you expect to be the best-selling items? Uh, does the Do the finishes that you selected have durability for those guests who are not so kind to your space? Uh, can you get more of those chairs when you want to do another one? Is that light fixture still being made? Uh, you know, there's a million questions that are much easier to answer if you've done it before. So it's incredibly tiring to repeat what you've done or to create something new. Uh, And it's also less exciting to create, to repeat what you've done because it's, you've done it. Right. You're copying, you're Xeroxing to some degree, as opposed to writing a new story. Uh, yeah, both are great. But, uh, you know, the concepts we love are the ones that have rough the, the uh we can repeat them. Um, and they're successful. And, you know, watching people walk in and pay for what you've created is amazing. You know, for, yeah, you know, wow, you did something that people want to pay for That's pretty cool. You've created something. And that's, there's no replacement for that feeling. Uh, so that's a lot of fun.
0: Well, and especially, I mean, it strikes me you've kind of hinted at it, but you and Michael are creatives. I mean, he, you said he does the design, so I imagine he's extremely creative. And as a creative, to your point, there is something enormously satisfying about creating, and that sort of necessitates that hard work you put into to, to coming up with something original. And I, and I did want to touch on that design part, because your, your company is called Need Hospitality and Design not just need hospitality. So clearly design is a very critical component here. Can you walk me through why? Why is that so important that it's part of the name?
1: You know, uh, Michael's passion is design, whether it's houses or restaurants or other people's, uh, other, other companies' uh, approach, other restaurants' approach. You know, architecturally, it's just, it's just a passion of his. And, you know, we wanted to be different than everybody else in the industry. We wanted, you know, most restaurateurs don't create their concepts. They'll say, hey, I have an idea for an Italian restaurant. They'll go talk to an architect and an interior designer and say, hey, help me create this. Show me what it's going to look like. Show me the floor plan. Give me a rendering and color it in and show me what my restaurant's going to look like. We approach it with we go to the architect and say hey here's the restaurant here's what we want it to look like let's work together to create this right but it's all in michael's head from a from a visual perspective and then i spend an enormous amount of time you know we create all the menus with our chefs um you know with edward lee we told him what we wanted, and then he made it and it was amazing right Mm -hmm. We can't do what he can do but we knew exactly we wanted the baby back ribs and we wanted shrimp and grits and we wanted chicken and waffles and we wanted it uh you know, he wanted a Korean version of chicken and waffles and we said, great, you know, we wanted uh, mashed potatoes and we wanted cornbread and we, we knew that we wanted certain things done a certain way because they're the thing the way that we think it'll be done best. And then you work with somebody to to bring your vision to life. So you surround yourself with specialists. Um but the guts of what we do is us and and you know um we have now a thousand employees and uh the creativity comes now in putting the right people in the right place with the right management team. And, uh, the creativity for me comes in, you know, how am I going to raise money for this concept? And how am I going to structure the, the investment for those that are interested in being a part of this? And are we going to go out to friends and family? Are we going to raise debt? Are we going to, um, you know, use gift card funding? Uh, are we going to do a license deal or a hotel deal or a management deal? And so for me, the creativity comes in more of the structure of what we're creating. And Michael and I meet in the middle. And I think that we bring a lot of diversity to what we do. I also think diversification is a really important thing.
2: And if we only have uh, Mexican
1: restaurants and obviously i don't think this is going to happen but if the u.s goes to war with mexico maybe people wouldn't eat in mexican restaurants as much you know maybe or at all all your eggs in that
2: basket yeah
1: so if you have diversification and you know our we're in the casual fine dining space we are not fine dining and tweezer food and we are not in fast casual only we're in the middle and i think the middle is the hardest place to be Hmm. you know if you if you ask thomas keller um if every one of his guests is going to show up tonight, the answer is going to be yes. Nobody misses a meal there. And he knows what everybody's having and the order that they're having it. And he has seven runners delivering seven plates to each table, right? So I'm not saying what he does is easy. It's not. It's at the highest levels. But there's something to be said for the guests showing up on time in a good mood to spend 300 bucks that they're not going to miss. And knowing what they're going to have in the order they're going to have it, Makes it a little easier, you and know. on the other end, you know fast casual is very high volume um, and it's a little simpler because you have no front of the house you have no servers, you have no greeters, you have no runners, you have no bussers sometimes you do depending on the concept, but you know servers and bartenders and and those that that adds complexity to an operation and we sit in the middle casual fine dining is your some percentage of your guests aren't going to show up uh, they're this is a, this is a, they may be dining and they may be eating, right? Eating is nourishing your body for sustenance and survival. And you're just grabbing a bite to eat. You go to the diner to eat. But if you go to our restaurants, you can eat a burger and you can eat a tomahawk. You can dine or you can eat. Dining is an experience. So we try to make all of our restaurants an experience, uh, but it's in that fast, ca- that casual, um, uh, sorry, it's in that, uh, Uh, casual fine dining space, right? Where people don't show up and, uh, it's a night out, but it's not, and it could be a special occasion, may not be. And you don't know what mood they're going to be in. You don't know what they're going to order. You don't know how they're going to order it. You know, so there's a lot of complexity in an operation like that. And that's where we spend all of our time for the most part. So that space in the restaurant industry is ridiculously difficult and uh, challenging, but it's also a lot of fun. Uh, so. I really do love what I do, but we've picked the hardest part of the industry, in my opinion, to do
0: it. Yeah, it's so interesting. I've never really heard somebody explain it that way, and that makes a ton of sense. But, of course, I have to ask the follow-up. Why do you choose that corner of the industry if you find it the hardest? You also mentioned the word experience, and based on what you've said about the importance of the design and the experience that they're having, I imagine it makes the experience all that more important when you are occupying this hard very hard to operate corner of the industry. So I guess, so I guess first part of that question is, is why did you choose that part? And second part is, you know, what is, what is distinct about the experience to make sure you're overcoming that hurdle of it being sort of a difficult corner of the industry?
1: Well, why did I choose this side of the industry? I I think I just like a challenge and it's also how I've grown up. You know, every restaurant I've ever worked in, except fast food was, you know, when I when I joined California Pizza Kitchen as a server in 1991, there were 14 restaurants in LA and it was a really cool place to eat. You know, it was the place to eat and it was, you know, a hundred bucks for two people and it was an experience, yet it was uh, on the casual side. So it's just where I've grown up. It's what I know. And up until COVID, uh, you know, kicked us all in the butt. I recognize that people have to eat and I didn't want to spend my time at the highest price point in fine dining and sort of that stuffy genre. And I didn't want to spend my time in sort of fast casual. I really wanted to spend my time where I thought, economically speaking, people can afford to eat out. And if you, if you, if you have restaurants in that sort of price point of you know roughly a hundred bucks for two people for dinner, you should, only, you should be able to survive regardless of the economy. Right. So we have a a good way to toe the line. And with diversification, we have all these different concepts. We have steak, we have uh Southern, we have Tex-Mex, we have Mexican, we have French. And so with that diversification and price point, we should be able to maybe one year, one will do a little better than the other, but at the end you it evens out over time. You know, Americans love French food, right? It's just a thing. Where it's it's, it's where there's been a bunch of French restaurants opening in DC, a lot more than usual lately, and that's it's on a trend. You know, we've got two of them, and so uh, having that diversification uh, also helps quite a bit. So I, I think that's a lot of um, a lot of it. And I, I also think that to be a great restaurateur, you have to be good at so many different things. You know, if you think about American business, and you think about business anywhere, actually, if you are a flower shop, you buy flowers, you put them in a vase, you design the floor, the arrangement, you sell it, it's complex, but they're not manufacturing their flowers in the flower store, right? We buy our raw materials. We manufacture them into a product, which is a meal or a beverage. We... Hired, you know, skilled technicians to manipulate those raw products into something else. We have to be great at real estate and legal and negotiating and marketing and design and uh, PR. I mean, every facet of American business happens in a restaurant. What other business do you manufacture and sell your product under one roof? right? I can't think of any. Nike doesn't make its shoes in its
2: stores, right? They make the shoes, they ship them in, they sell them,
1: right? So restaurants are just hard work. And I think that's why so many things go wrong in them every day. And having, you know, every day there's, we have all these restaurants, every day something happens in a restaurant. No day is the same. And that's really what I love about it. Every day is different it's like being a policeman without the risk of, of death. You know, you every day is just a little bit different and it keeps you on your toes. Um, Your second question was, I'm sorry. Second part of your question was about the the experience
0: part of it, because I imagine, I imagine that if you're doing that space between fast casual and fine dining, the experience is really key to what's driving people into the restaurants. So, so how do you really elevate the experience of your restaurants to overcome that fact that you are not Danny Meyer on this side and you are not high volume on the other side.
1: So we are high volume. You know, We'll, we'll serve 2,000 people on a Saturday at Mi Vita at the Wharf in D.C. I mean, it's just nonstop. So we design and create our restaurants so they can be high volume and so we can have that revenue generation. But I think from an experience perspective, it's really about some philosophies we have as a company. One of them is you eat with your eyes. Right, And if you walk into a space and it's beautiful, then the menu that's put down in front of you that's beautiful, that has cool, interesting lettering and design and coloring and feels solid and feels something you can respect, and you see that price tag for that cheeseburger, it might make the cheeseburger seem a little bit more worth the value and the cost because you put time and energy into the arrival right so when you walk into a restaurant you sit down and the lighting is just right and the temperature is right and the music is just right and the energy and the vibe as the kids say these days is right then that burger is going to taste better and if you're charging 22 bucks for a burger which is a lot of money in this country for a cheeseburger or any kind of burger you don't have a lot of room for error But if you're serving it on a beautiful plate by somebody who's dressed well and presentable and not wrinkled and and disheveled, and if the floors are clean and, and everything, all the stars align, that burger is worth more because of the environment that it was eaten in. You know, why is it that eating the same burger out of a takeout container at home doesn't seem like a great value, but eating the same burger in a
2: restaurant provides that value, right?
1: The burger is the same, but the takeout packaging isn't that pretty. It usually never is. Eating at home in your garish bright light and your dog begging for food in front of you and your kid grabbing at you to come over with them or share your burger, it's just not going to taste as good. And then you're going to question the value of what you just ate. Right. So the environment of consuming that product, if you want to get, you know, business oriented about it is all about the environment that you surround that product in. And so we spend all of our time, not all of our time, a lot of our time making sure that we can control the things that you can control. We can control the temperature, the light setting, the music choices and the music volume, the lighting, the dip. we're big in the dimming and lighting. We spend a lot of money on finishes. We spend a lot of money on lighting. We believe that you and I look better in lower light at dinner, right? We believe that the restrooms should be designed. You should walk into a restroom, and it should be part of your experience. You shouldn't walk into a, a beautiful restaurant's restroom and feel like you're in the airport, right? That's true. Because yeah. you walk into that airport, that restroom, and you have that bright white light and LED lighting scaring at your face that has just had three cocktails, and you're like, "Oh, time to go home." That's true. But if it's moody, and it's loud, and it's sexy, and you look at yourself and you're like, I look good, time for another drink, you're going to go spend another 16 bucks on that cocktail. And that's because the restrooms were thoughtful. And the restrooms were designed by someone who cared about how things look and how things feel. And so where we, I think, differentiate ourselves is we're about the experience, we spend more on our restaurants, we spend more on the finishes, we have two full-time people that all they do is go to our restaurants and make sure things work and look good. to The guest and operate properly for our team, right? That's all they do. And Mm -hmm. because our guests, our guests and our staff abuse the hell out of our restaurants. Mm -hmm. When you're really busy, things break, uh, glass, China, silver breaks, uh, you know, lights get broken. People fall. Things happen in restaurants. You know, there's criminal activity. People steal things. You know, oh, that votive looks nice. I'm going to take that home. I'm sure they didn't want it. Um, you know, so there's there's a lot to that experience. And we believe we will be more successful and we think we are successful because we care more about you and how you eat with your eyes. Mm.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Is there a... Um... Does that elevate the importance of geography for you? Because, you know, I've been thinking you've been talking about, too, sort of the diversity, diversity of your portfolio, which I imagine helps you stay flexible in terms of developing a concept according to the real estate available to you. So you mentioned your restaurant outside of Nat's Park and how you had to develop something new because your existing concepts were, were too close. So you, you come upon a piece of real estate. You decide you're going to, you know, develop a new concept. But all of that experience, you know, I imagine it's, what is important is, I mean, the neighborhood is important. The neighbor, like the immediate neighbors, business, neighboring businesses, that's important. Nat's Park being in your backyard is important. Do you consider all of that sort of the geographical components of the locations of your restaurants to design that experience uniquely?
1: 100%. You know, um, Nat's Park, what what do people like to eat in? that area. You know, what is the kind of food? And what was hard about that location is none of the buildings had been built yet. There's now mm. like ten apartment buildings and there were none. So who's your demographic? Don't know. They don't they don't live here yet. Right? We know who goes to baseball games, people that like baseball. What do they eat at baseball games? Well, burgers, dogs, beer, you know, food's getting to be more important in stadiums these days, so that's good. And then, you know, Nat's Park is adjacent to the Navy Yard where there's a bunch of really interesting restaurants, which of those restaurants are doing well. The brewery, I forgot the name of it, but it does very well, right? There's a fine dining Lebanese restaurant that does very well over there. Uh, Other restaurants like the Italian Place on the waterfront, not doing so well. So looking at other people's successes and failures or lack of volume gives you an idea, but we wanted to do an upscale diner and we thought, well, What's safe in America when you don't have a real demographic? And at the time, there were a bunch of office buildings, people who lunch. Uh, This is, you know, again, we signed this in 17. It was supposed to open in April of 20. And then COVID happened in March of 20. So the restaurant sat empty for a year. And we opened in April of 21. So, Mm -hmm. you know, we looked like geniuses because the Nats had won the World Series in 19. And we had a restaurant that was opening right in time for the following season. But we couldn't have looked any smarter you know, as tours. Oh yeah, the Nats have never won the World Series and we sign a lease that opens the beginning of their season afterwards. I mean, you look like geniuses and then you, what you didn't know, there was a pandemic lurking, right. uh, you know, a couple of weeks prior. So uh, that's risky to open a restaurant with no demographic uh, living around you that you can pull from and really analyze. But a lot of the time, if, for example, our, our third, our fourth restaurant is The Grill. And we had this monster success, Mivita, which is the busiest Mexican restaurant in the Mid-Atlantic, uh, from what I understand, and like top 100 uh, restaurant business revenue. Um, and it's sitting on the Potomac in this great development. And we're just killing it. And then the landlords, and I said to the landlord, who now we have a great relationship with because we run their busiest restaurant, we say, why don't you have any American restaurants here besides Shake Shop? Well, I don't know. We have ethnic, we have French. We're not French. We have Italian and Lebanese and Irish and You know, another Italian pizza place. But you have no. How do you not have an American restaurant in DC at the Wharf? Well, we've been talking about doing a steakhouse. Why would you do a steakhouse? There's a steakhouse in every corner in the city. It's DC. It's where people go to eat all the time. And the steakhouses are good. But how's that interesting? And they said, "Well, what would you do, Jason and Michael?" And we said, "Well, we would do a grill." Well, what's a grill? Well, a grill is like a steakhouse, except it has a lot more offerings and it's not quite as expensive. You can, you have a, a more breadth of choice. So you're not gonna spend 60 bucks on a steak or 60 bucks on a steak, but you can have a burger. You can have a nice piece of fish, a salad, oysters. It's more approachable. And early in my career, I worked for Hillstone, which used to be called Houston's. And I was a server there in many of the restaurants in Bandera, and uh, was a general manager for them before I went off and did other things. And I always loved the way Houston's ran the restaurants. And I didn't want to copy Houston's like so many people have done and slap a new name on the copy of their menu. I mean, we don't operate that way and don't think that's terribly interesting, but we wanted to do an open kitchen grill with a beautiful, we have a beautiful Josper grill from Spain. That's very expensive uh, and very expensive to maintain, by the way. and. uh We do all these great steaks and we have oysters and calamari and chopped salad and, you know, sides. And so that concept was created because the landlord had a need and we knew that we wanted to be in the wharf because we're killing it in the wharf. Why would not we want to do another one? So some of these things just happened organically and we didn't have to think that hard. Your landlord wants, you know, you're going to be successful. Your landlord is very happy with you and, you know, they pay for a portion of the, of the build out. So it all worked, you know. And yeah. then we have a French concept in the wharf, which um, used to be an ice cream shop. And we took over the lease for them during the pandemic. They wanted out. And it's literally on the same corner as Mi Vida, except on the opposite corner. So how do you not take this 1,800 square foot spot? Well, what are you going to do? can't do steak. And we can't do Mexican. So we created a French concept. It's called Bistro du Jour. And our second location of that opens next week. So most of this concept concepting has had it. we've been able to cheat a little bit because there was no French at the wharf. There was Italian and a Lebanese and Irish and Shake Shack. Well, French. How about French on the waterfront? Right? So mm-hmm. that was fairly easy. Now you gotta kinda con- now you gotta find a chef. Now you gotta design it. You know, so that was challenging. Um but it's always challenging. But that's fun.
0: Right. Well, and you—you you were kind of joking before, but I probably there was some some honesty to it, where you were—you said you don't wouldn't recommend people do ten concepts, uh, because that's a, that's a lot of concepts to to balance in your portfolio. But I mean, does that mean are you guys thinking about like scaling from here? You invest in the concepts you have, or are you still interested in as a piece of real estate comes up, and you know none of your existing concepts work for it? You, you still would go for it and design something new.
2: Yes. Uh-huh. <laughs>
1: If I have to choose between something I know and something I don't, I'm going to do something I know.
2: Mm-hmm. Right. If a piece of real estate is so
1: great and you got to have it, you come up with something new and we know we can do it. We've done it many times, right? There was a space uh, in DuPont circle that used to be called bear burger uh, on Connecticut Avenue. And we coveted that location for many times. We lived nearby. And it was a cozy sandwich shop. Then it was Bear Burger and Bear Burger closed during the pandemic. And it turns out a good friend of ours bought the building and said, I'm not buying this building unless you guys will put a restaurant in. And we said, wow, we've loved that spot forever. But we couldn't do any of our other restaurants there. So we created a Tex-Mex concept called Mikasa. And it's been open for two years. And it's you know enchiladas and fajitas and burritos and what Americans generally think is Mexican food, but it's really more it's Tex-Mex. Mm. And it does great and it's a lot of fun and I love eating. Um, so, um, I don't recommend, I think the complexity. So if we have restaurant week, which we did two weeks ago, well, if you have 10 succotash restaurants, you can do one menu and have it in all 10 restaurants. If you have 10 restaurants and 10 concepts, then you have
2: to do 10 restaurant week menus. That's right. It's a pain in the ass.
1: Yeah. It's, you know, and, there's also, um, and that's fun for someone, but it's not fun for everyone. Uh, but we run all of our restaurants the same, other than the food, beverage, and design, right? So we run our doors the same, we run our kitchens the same, our infrastructure is the same, the way we process invoices, the way that we, and, and we, so we get scale and 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 economies of scale with you know our broadline distributor, for example, we get deals because we all buy chicken, right? Right. We all buy tequila um, so we can take advantage. And so, even though we're not probably able to take advantage, if we had 10 mevitas, we'd be the biggest buyer of avocados on the East Coast. Well, because we only have three mevitas, we're the biggest buyer of avocados in DC. Right. Well, that gives us scale, mm-hmm. not as much, but, um, you know, if the same guy's cleaning all of our hoods, Probably get a better deal from him because he cleans ten restaurants and knows that if he screws up one of them, he's not—he's going to lose ten restaurants, and that's a lot of a lot of his accounts. So I think you still get a lot of the scale and benefit of multi-concepts, um, but you get an enormous, uh, a lot more complexity because of it. But you know, now we train our servers and bartenders in one location for the whole company, so all of our servers for all of our restaurants go to the same training class. Because service is the same in all restaurants, except the food and beverage are different. You know, in a pinch, when you're looking at a Saturday night and a server calls out and you have four tables staring at you closed, you can borrow a server from another restaurant who knows toast, who knows our standards. They don't know the food as well, but they all run the same way. It's all order fire. It's all, um, you know, the, the, the best-selling drinks are the, generally the same kind of best-selling drink in each restaurant. We have a punch in every restaurant. Punch is always number one. You know, So there's some things that you know you may not know the table numbers. You may not be as helpful. But are you going to lose $2,000, 3000 in revenue because you lost a server for the night? No. Maybe lose a few hundred bucks because they weren't as good or as fast. But I'll take that over nothing. And so there's a lot of it. Now that our size and our scale, we have some advantages that other restaurants don't. You know, if you have mm-hmm. a single restaurant and a server calls out, well, who are you going to borrow from?
2: The owner is going to wait tables. Right. Or the manager.
1: So, yeah. you know, there are some benefits to what we do as well.
0: Yeah, it's, you know, efficiencies. Uh, uh, this it's year we've been talking. Way. Don't get me wrong. You know, sure. Definitely Yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah. We've been talking all year about efficiencies. And and I I think that's one of the things that I'm is most interesting about, you know, groups like need, which is the ability to achieve efficiencies uh, at that scale, but still having the sort of independent spirit, the independent restaurant spirit, um, which, you know, absolutely what you were just describing seems like it's totally aligned with that. Um, I wanted to talk with you 2 uh, about going back to this idea of keeping flexible with your concepts and with the real estate and adapting to the neighborhoods. It sounds like everything you're doing, you're very oriented intentionally around DC. I mean, are you trying to, because with the, the flexibility of concepts, if you were all in on succotash and you had 10 succotashes, you would saturate DC after 10 restaurants, right? At, at that point, you have to leave DC. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah, out of necessity, right? So I imagine some of this, the diversity of concepts and, and creating new concepts is is helping you to uh, saturate DC even beyond that, right? So was that intentional? Are you guys looking specifically to make that impact in DC?
1: Well, so when I worked, so prior to going off on our own, Michael and I, I worked for Rosa Mexicano, which um, I joined Rosa. Uh, when they had three restaurants, DC had just opened in two thousand and four, and I stayed there for ten years. And uh, I joined as a regional uh, manager, you know, supervising a couple of restaurants. They only had three, and then uh, I left the company as a COO, and they had nineteen restaurants. So I got to really help bring a company up. But I lived on an airplane. Yeah, um, I lived in New York for the first uh, five years of working at Rosa. Then I moved to Miami where at the time Rosa had two restaurants and it didn't really matter where I lived as long as there was a Rosa nearby, because I lived on an airplane. Literally mm-hmm. I was gone in half a month and I, I really enjoyed that part of my life, but um, I don't want to live on an airplane and I don't want our team to live on an airplane. I think we made some mistakes with Rosa. You know, we opened a restaurant in Minneapolis. Mm-hmm. We had restaurants at the time in LA and San Francisco and New York and DC, but we had nothing in the middle of the country and didn't know the market. and. It was, it turned out to be the biggest restaurant we ever did. Um, it just the way it worked out. And it, you know, lasted a couple of years. But, you know, no offense to Minnesota, which is now a city I, Minneapolis is a city I really like. But I had no desire to, you know, spend time in Minneapolis since I needed to. I didn't know it. Um, and so it's hard to have economies of scale if you're scattered all over the place. Yeah. Um, I can't borrow a server. If I have one restaurant in Chicago and that station's closed, I'm screwed, right? But if I have a station closed in D.C., I can borrow from all these other restaurants. So clustering restaurants, I think, is a really important thing. you got to plant a flag and start with one. But uh, there are also some concepts that you can only have one in each city. You right. know, the city can't support, no matter what the city, unless it's New York or L.A. or maybe Chicago or Dallas, you, most cities can't handle more than one of a, a restaurant that is a big, you know, how many restaurant, how many cities could handle a town? You know, can handle more than one. New York right. has two or you know, and that's probably sufficient. Um so uh part of it is just my experience and Michael's experience not wanting to live on an airplane. It's really you know when when you get really excited about getting upgraded to eat uh a uh, TV dinner, you need to reevaluate what makes you happy in life. Uh, you know, oh, I can move my feet and I got a overcooked piece of short rib. I've had a good day. That's not a good day. Right. Um, and it's still like that, by the way. It's just, you know, slightly better than it was. Um, so, clustering. Uh, we can't really do much more in D.C. Uh, D.C. is not the welcoming city that it once was for small business, in my opinion. Uh, I've made it very clear how I feel in other publications. Uh, but uh, it's it's going the way of New York and California, where it's just, you know, I've run restaurants in California and I would never ever open a restaurant in that state unless somebody paid me to do it and said, I don't care if I make money. Mm-hmm. You know, I just it just doesn't appeal to me. The the regulation, the tip credits. So you have to be strategic. There's still forty two states that have a tip credit, and that tip credit allows us to stay alive and make money and feed ourselves and our, our early staff do fantastic. They make great money. They don't need to make minimum wage if the tip credit helps them, helps us operate and stay alive, and they get to make thirty to sixty bucks an hour, depending on the position, in the front of the house. Nobody, yep. nobody's starving. So um, we have sort of, other than um, this last deal that we've signed in DC, um, I don't anticipate doing more here. I think we've kind of done what we can do. There may be some other deals that come up that are too good to say no, but, uh, we're really looking outside. So we're evaluating a deal in Philadelphia. We're, we're uh, looking at Boston, Florida. Uh, we've signed two leases in Virginia beach, uh, which is a strange, you know, go from the big city to a, a, a very regional city. I had never even been there until like, uh, about a year and a half ago. Mm. And, uh, the, the project we're working on, I can't talk much about it, but we're doing two restaurants in the same development, you know? So we talk about planting a flag a hundred feet from each other with two of your concepts. Um, so, but I, I think about that every day. I'm like, okay, so I've opened many restaurants outside of our home city in my life. So I know what I'm getting into, but now we got to house, you know, 20 people for a month in a hotel,
2: uh,
1: four hours from home. Uh, we've got to figure out per diem. We've got to figure out what team we really need to figure out how we're going to hire this management team and how we're going to train them. Right. Now we had to get them back to DC to train in the concepts that we're going to open there. So all these logistics and, you know, all that, just opening a restaurant outside of your home city probably adds the way we do things, $200,000 to the reopening expenses. Yeah. Yeah. And, our landlord is fantastic and excited to have us and making it worthwhile for us, but it doesn't cost me that when I open a restaurant in D.C. There's other expenses, but mm-hmm. not that. So, yes, we're looking outside of D.C., but we just have to be smart. Uh, we're looking at airports. We're looking at hotels. We're opening our, our first hotel restaurant next week, our bistro that we're doing here in D.C. So we're finding interesting partners to do th- interesting things with that are not traditional restaurants. And I think, again, diversification, you know, why are we going to open a, a Gatsby restaurant at Dulles airport? You know, it's, it makes business sense and it's something we haven't done before. And I don't have to operate it. I'm not going to be the. True. We're not going to manage it. We're going to, it's a license. So we get some of the benefits uh without, without doing most of the hard work. True, Hard work isn't operating. So. We have a partner there that um, that's what they do for a living. They run independent restaurants and airports. They're experts at that. I am not. You know, I want to open uh, restaurants in the UK and in Sydney and in cities where I think our concerts would do really well. But I don't want to run them. I don't know English law and Australian law. I don't know the intricacies of the guests there. I don't know the dynamics of hospitality and how things work and that. And I could learn that or I could find a partner who does it professionally, we give them what we do well, we train and we teach and we concept and we design, but they get to do the day to day. That's, I think, smarter. And, you know, stay in your lane, so to speak, do what you're good. Sure. doing. Don't try to no. be good at everything because nobody is.
0: That's the backbone of franchising right there, right? Um, you know, you want to be, you want to scale, but you don't want to have to be the one that's doing all of them. So It's, it seems like that would be the kind of model you're, you're shooting for. But I imagine too, when you go into these cities like Philadelphia, Boston, Virginia beach, even you must see, I mean, if you put, you plant 20 restaurants in DC, Virginia beach is certainly not going to be 20 restaurant opportunity, but you must see so much opportunity in cities because you've got, it's like a a quiver full of arrows, so to speak of the Mm concepts that you can go into a city and just pop these things all over. Do you think in those terms?
1: I don't know about pop these things all over, but I do, <laughs> I do say, wow, we've got such an arsenal of, of options that we can attack a city, if you will, with what we have without, you know, just cannibalizing one of our concepts, for example. Right. So I think that makes it attractive. You know, Philadelphia, we're looking at two restaurants again with the same developer and the same project that has space and makes sense for two of our concepts. Um, and so those two restaurants being next to each other will create their own little cluster. And that, that to me is smart if it makes business sense, right? In Virginia beach, having two restaurants next to each other that can share resources and people. If somebody calls out, if a manager's sick, if the GM got to that, something happens, they had a car accident, you know, who's going to go open that restaurant? Well, the manager next door could probably open that restaurant because they open the same way. Is all the other restaurants. So as opposed to being on that little island, I think, uh, again, risk averse to some degree, putting two restaurants there might make more sense than putting one. You know, will the architect give us a better deal if they're designing, if they're working on two restaurants at the same time in the same location? Probably not the way they think, but it's the way I think. Right. 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 and a place like Virginia Beach, you know, they haven't had a lot of new, exciting things going on there from a from a restaurant perspective in a long time. So, yes, it's really hard to get staff, but if we're the bright, shiny object, maybe we'll, it'll be easier for us to hire staff there than if we're the latest restaurant to open in New York City, right? Restaurants open in New York City every day. Nobody knows need in New York City. You're competing for the same talent at our price point as everybody else. But in Virginia Beach, maybe the competition's not quite as fierce. Mm. I don't know. Uh, I've eaten some great restaurants in Virginia Beach, but there aren't a lot of new restaurants. And the development we're going into is brand spanking new and very cool and has a music venue. and So there's a lot of reasons why people might want to work there. And it might be easier for us than even in our own backyard in D.C. You know, And people
2: yeah.
1: don't want to work like they used to a lot of, a lot of the hourly staff are not uh, as committed to uh, the job as they used to be. So you got to go to places where hopefully it's easier to find people and the competition is not as fierce.
0: Right. Right. Well, that's a great segue into, I want to talk about your, your workforce and the benefits you provide your workforce um you know last year you and Michael were we uh had you on our power list because we were just really impressed with how you guys have invested in your people and the benefits you've provided i wanted to just check in on that how how is that going you have a thousand employees like you said how how have you chosen to invest in those employees and make sure they see need as a, an employer of choice
1: so um you know we have a couple of big programs for our salary teammates um, and i and i think that's where the industry has been hit the hardest. I mean, it's been hit hard everywhere, but we're finding, you know, since, since sort of recovering from the pandemic in early 22, finding managers and chefs was the really tough part. You know, people don't want to work on their feet 50, 60 hours a week for 60, $70,000 a year. And inflation has taken care of that number and it's higher now. Uh, so, but we had to find ways that we could attract people and, and or dislodge great people from other good companies and competitors that wouldn't leave unless you have gave them a reason to. If I'm a general manager here, why should I stop what I'm doing, go learn something else for the same money, right? It's just easier to go to work and do what you've been doing than to go do something new. So you got to dislodge them. How do you dislodge them? Well, by being a, more attractive, right? And so the two programs that we've been working on, one is called Four Days at Work, which is not a four-day work week in the traditional sense because, A, we don't guarantee it 52 weeks a year uh, because the restaurant industry is a restaurant industry. And if one somebody calls out, we might need you to work out fifth day or somebody resigns or somebody's in training. So we don't tell people it's a guarantee. But it's also about efficiency. So if you're working for 11 11-hour days, 44 hours a week, and you don't get your administrative work done at work during those 44 hours, then you need to do it. You need to come in on your fifth day or you need to do it from the mountains or the beach or wherever you're hanging out. But we're not going to guarantee that you're you're not going to work a bit during their three days off. But if you're smart and you're focused and you're efficient, you should be able to have those three days for yourself. And so we've, we've lowered the minimum threshold, you know, when we used to do offer letters, we'd say, your work week is 55 hours a week, and it would end up being you know, 60, 65 by the time you're said and done, and you shoot the shit with six people on your way out, and wow, it's been here 13 hours instead of 11 or 12. Um, so we've reduced the hours per day and taken a day out of the week, and we've been testing that in a couple of restaurants, and the feedback from, and it's, it's not for the executive chef or the general manager. We're not quite there yet on the key leader in each side of the restaurant but we've been testing it and it's been it's been embraced well and the turnover has reduced mm. um, and so we're but you can't start four days at work unless you are overstaffed with managers and chefs because if you have a three manager team at 15 shifts well to give everybody a day off now you need four managers working four shifts which so is 16 right so now i'm going to but, and you're going to have to pay them the same salary, right? So now we're paying them, let's just say 75 grand a year times four in both the front and the back. Now you're $150,000 a year over plus benefits and taxes. You're seventy-five, dollars right? So why is that worth it? Well, we believe, and I think it's showing, A, the turnover is lower, and uh, there's something called institutional knowledge, right? Institutional knowledge is what, You learn in your business that you take with you when you leave that when you're replaced, that takes that person a long time to learn, right? You know, you work in a restaurant for five years, your replacements, how long are they going to take until they're as good as you were and they've seen all that you've seen a year? Maybe. Maybe you ran the door like a champ and you knew when you could push it and you quote 20 to 30 minutes when your replacement quotes an hour. Well, how many of those people have walked out the door and not eaten in a restaurant when they would have been seated in twenty to thirty minutes had the probe in there and the person with all that institutional knowledge? I can't prove with numbers that I'm right, but I know I'm right. Mm. so do you pay for it on the front end by having an extra person on it in the front and the back? make your team happier, make their personal lives better? make it so that when they leave, they have to work five
2: days a week somewhere else. And then they get
1: sticky, right? They want to stick with need. And if you get tired of Southern, I'll put you in steak or French or Tex-Mex or a diner. So you're not going to get bored here. We have managers that have worked in six different restaurants in the same city, but with the same company. So now you have people sticking around longer. Uh, if I hire a manager at 75 grand and I got to pay a recruiter who found me that manager 15%, let's call it 10 grand, then I train them for four weeks, right? That's 1500 a week. That's six grand. I've spent $16,000 on that person and I don't even know if they're any good. I think they'll be good, but everybody interviews pretty well for the most part, right? It's what, what happens after the interview is whether you find out if they're any good. So you spend $16,000 to find out you hired a turkey, or you can spend, and, and if you recycle all of your managers and chefs, because turnover in this industry is high, if you, if you turn over those six people in that original example, right, and $16,000 each per year, you know, you're a hundred grand a year right there in turnover, plus what lost revenue, or what about how they set up the floor plan with servers that shouldn't be in that section, or what if they overorder? Or, what if they don't know how to make the fried chicken properly? Right. So, you have this learning curve, and who pays for that learning curve? The restaurant does either in higher costs or lower revenue. So, is that $175,000 a year worth it? It's starting to sound like it is. Right. And so, that's the philosophy from a business perspective on four days at work, but it's an investment. Right. And if somebody leaves, everybody just goes back to five days for a couple right. of weeks while we find someone else, which is what they're getting paid for anyway.
2: Yeah, it's
1: not as fun, but if we if there's 52 weeks in a year and you can give 40, 42 of those weeks at four days, you've given somebody back a month of their life, a month and a half, right? Who wants to leave a company that does that for you? Mm-hmm. I don't, right? So right. there's that program. And then we also started something called Need Life and Style Benefits, which, um we created because we're testing this program and everybody's getting jealous of the restaurants testing it. And now you've got, well, I want to go work there. So I don't have to work for four days. Okay. Now what are we going to do? Now we created this problem. So, uh, we created nice need life and style benefits, which is depending on your position or how long you've been with us, you got a certain allowance per month to spend on things, right? So, um, you get parking. If you don't drive a car, you get, um, Uber or Lyft or whatever. Um, or, or metro if you drive, su- ride the subway. You get an allowance towards dining out, towards entertainment, towards uh, grooming,
2: uh, towards the gym, towards clothing, right? So it's, it adds up to about $10,000 a year all in.
1: And if you have balance in your life and you get your nails done or get your hair cut or buy a new shirt or go to a concert, hopefully that bleeds into your professional life and you're a, more, a happier person. Hopefully, right? Yeah. So if we take on some of that expense, you have more balance. You come to work, you're a happier guy or gal. And then guess what? Your staff is a little happier because you're a little happier. You're not the jerk you used to be, right? Right. And then your staff's happier. Guess
2: what? The guest is happier, right? So one of our philosophies
1: in our company is happy management, happy staff, happy guest. This is not rocket science. If you treat people well, they're going to do a better job. If
2: you take care of the people who are taking care of the guest,
1: and they're happy, the guest is going to be happy. That server is going to go a little bit more out of their way to take care of them. That cook in the kitchen who's making the mole enchiladas is going to put a little more love and care into that dish. There is a direct, unproven correlation between uh, restaurants with happy executive chefs and unhappy executive chefs. Yeah. If your executive chef is good at their job and loves what they do, you can taste the passion in their food. I don't know how. I do know why. But I can't tell you the, the mechanics of it. But I used to work at Rosa. We had 19 restaurants. And the best chefs to where it had the best personalities and the happiest staff, their food just tasted better. Same damn recipe. Just made with love and food made with love tastes better. Drinks made with love taste better. Service provided with love is better. So this is we're in the hospitality industry. Yep. You take care of your staff. They'll take care of everything else. And that, you know, Danny Meyer said it best, you know, the staff comes first, the team comes first, mm-hmm. and, and that's what's, what matters. So those yeah. are two of our programs that we've rolled out, um, and they're successful and we want to continue to roll them out. It's expensive, but we believe it pays for itself. Yeah. An investment for and sure. Now, and now we have a hundred and a thousand employees. I think about 110 of them are salaried and we're pretty much fully staffed. It's not um, it's incredible, yeah. And not, not many restaurant groups of our size can say they're fully staffed, right? Um, and uh, it's a it's a it's just the pressure that takes off of our regional managers and our corporate shops is amazing. They're happier because they don't have to go fill in when it's a busy Sunday and they've earned their Sundays off. They've been in this business as long as I have. They don't want to work Sundays. They want to be at home, right? Nobody wants to work Sunday, right? So. You don't have to go fill in and you're the corporate chef at a restaurant because you're they're staffed. They're a happy, you're a happy guy. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. Well, Jason Barry, co-founder of Need Hospitality and Design, inspiring story and incredible to see your success and very excited to watch your continued success. So thanks for joining me on the podcast today, Jason. That was my interview with Need Hospitality and Design owner, Jason Barry. So what should you learn from this interview? Here are my six takeaways. My first takeaway is that developing a new concept is much harder than replicating an existing one, but might be the right decision based on your available space. Jason described needs growth uh, trajectory to this point. Uh, it's, it's strategy, if you will. He said it's very organic how this group has expanded to 10 concepts. And I appreciated his honesty that he said at times this was is hard. He didn't think that this was the right way to do it necessarily, but it's just kind of how it happened that they have expanded to 10 concepts. And a lot of the ways in which this happened was when a space came available to them, a landlord offered them a a, a space, you know, their existing concept might have been already pretty close or maybe there was already a similar concept nearby. They had to do something different. So very organically, they got to this point where they developed 10 concepts across the city of Washington, D.C., uh, but as jason described too you know this is uh, not so easy as a process of saying okay well you know last time we put this furniture in we had this design we did that and this you know you have to really start from scratch obviously on a new concept jason and michael clearly are extremely creative individuals and really thrive on that process uh, but you can hear from jason's uh, interview how difficult this still is to start from scratch on a restaurant concept Still, you know, now that they're at 10 concepts, uh, I'm sure they don't regret having that many concepts when they fit so well into the space. You might have this own situation where a piece of real estate opens up, and for whatever reason, it doesn't make sense to do your existing concept there. There are a variety of reasons for why it might make sense to do a new concept there. Just remember starting from scratch is not easy, it is quite hard. Um, But if it's the right thing to do, just buckle in because you could get to that point where you have a new concept in your portfolio and it opens future doors for you as you grow your company. My second takeaway is that the intersection of dining and eating is a tough but rewarding category. I know that's kind of a confusing thing to say, but Jason broke this down really thoughtfully, I thought, which is the fact that dining is an experience – Eating is for sustenance. On the QSR and fast casual side of things, you have eating. People just need a meal. They need three of them a day. They come to your restaurant for a quick meal. That's all they want out of it, something that's quick, valuable, tasty. On the other end of the spectrum, as he used Thomas Keller as an example, you have restaurants that are an experience, very expensive, very fancy, but memorable, and art, Its food is clearly um, something that can be elevated to that just once-in-a-lifetime kind of experience, and and Jason said need is somewhere in the middle of those two things. It's on one hand pulling in the experiential components, but on the other hand, it's also got concepts and menu items that are more leaning toward just that sustenance, need a quick meal kind of a thing. And as he explained, that's a hard place to be because you can never really quite figure out that perfect... Algorithm for do we lean more this direction of uh, quick, valuable, uh, you know, sustenance, or do we lean more toward this experiential, high quality kind of experience? Uh, but at the same time, even though it's hard, Jason says it gives them a great amount of flexibility and a great amount of creativity to exist there because they can pull from each side of things. They can pull from the experiential and they can pull from the other side, which is, you know, a quicker, um, more sustenance kind of experience. Um, and I think this is a really interesting tip for other restaurants to think about, because if you are a fast casual, you might think about ways of bringing yourself further on that spectrum toward the experience if you are already a very high quality experience, you might think about ways to bring yourself more toward on the spectrum toward that uh, that more just eating as sustenance kind of experience, and find that perfect balance that's going to really reward your customer. Ultimately, and you know, as he says, Thomas Keller always knows somebody is going to show up for his meal because they booked it months in advance and they know what they're getting into. Uh, and simultaneously, you have a fast casual. They're getting a ton of volume if they're in the right, you know, in the right um, restaurant because they've got foot traffic or, you know, whatever. A lot of people coming by to grab a quick meal. When you're in the middle, you don't have that predictability. You don't have that volume. And you're trying to kind of bring both of those two things into sync to to have a successful business. Um, but when you get it right, it really sounds like there is magic there because you can access the entire dining uh, public and provide something for everybody. Uh, my third takeaway is that concept diversification provides a more stable business model. So this diversification of experiences and, and menus that they have at need Um, You know, they have a Mexican concept, they have a French bistro, they have succotash, which is more of, you know, southern style. Uh, Obviously, a broad variety of menu types, cuisines, and experiences that they have. But Jason explained this helps them because, you know, you might go through a period of time where people just, maybe they don't want Mexican food, maybe they don't want this French bistro, maybe they don't want that high-end experience, and they want something that's a little bit quicker, and with a diverse portfolio of concepts, you know, you're not riding those trends so, uh, you know, fiercely. You know, you, you you have some other concepts that are experiencing the high when the others are experiencing the low. And I, I thought that was a really fascino- fascinating way to put that, that it all in the end finds a balance when you have this um, diversity of concepts in a way that is very successful and ultimately stable for the brand or for the company. And the last point to that too is Jason explained how you can also be risk averse with this concept diversification, because if they have a landlord that comes in and offers them a great piece of real estate and, you know, there's already a Southern uh, style concept next door, so they can't put a succotash in there, but they do have a Mexican concept they, they could drop in there. Or even better, maybe a landlord comes to them and says, we have three storefronts that we want to fill, need can come in and fill all three of them instead of just choosing one. So there's a lot of benefits to diversifying your portfolio of concepts that are uh, really smart to think about if that's the direction that you plan to go in. My fourth takeaway is that customers eat with their eyes, and the visual details besides the food matter. I I loved this, and and we got into this in the conversation, how design is part of the name of this company, Need Hospitality and Design. Uh, And and it sounds like Michael really leans more on that side of the business, whereas Jason um, takes care of a lot more of sort of the business side of things. Uh, But it's really fascinating to hear Jason explain how they approach the aesthetic of every restaurant, even just the lighting. He says they spend so much time and attention and money on lighting because the right lighting leads to the right experience they want to provide for the guest – in a way that ultimately provides value. That's such an interesting concept. He used the example of like a $22 burger. On the face of it, you say a $22 burger, that's not valuable, I don't want that. And it's, if you go to do a takeout and you, you do takeout and grab a $22 burger and take it home and, and you know, he said yeah, the conditions at your home aren't right, maybe it tra- didn't travel well, you're not going to think that $22 burger is a good value. But if you're sitting in a really nice restaurant, the lighting is perfect, the music is perfect, the mood is perfect twenty two dollars might seem like a value for that burger. I think that's a really great point and something to think about. I'm sure you don't have a sterile environment in your own restaurant, but maybe you don't prioritize some of the visual aesthetic of your restaurant like you should. Think about the ways you can use all of these other elements the bathrooms as Jason said, the lighting the 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 um, sounds of the restaurant, the furniture all of those things around the food can create a value equation that ultimately benefits the experience you are giving your customers. My fifth takeaway is that it's hard to have economies of scale when you're spread out geographically. So Jason and Michael came out of another uh, Mexican restaurant concept called Rosa Mexicano, uh, which is still uh, you know a successful restaurant concept, but Michael saw it through some times where It opens in in some cities where it perhaps should not have. And as he explained, you know, when you do that, you lose the benefit of those economies of scale that if you are clustered in one city or one region – You can leverage things like maintenance, labor models, uh, where if one one restaurant needs a team member to fill in, they can pull from another restaurant. If one restaurant's in D.C. and one is in Minneapolis, you can't do that. Uh, Obviously, that goes for a supply chain, too. When you stretch your geographic footprint far, you're losing that ability to maximize the economies of scale. And that's why for Need Hospitality and Design, they have focused so much of their growth to date on Washington, D.C., and as they grow out, they're going to go to Philadelphia, Baltimore, you know, the, the East Coast, Virginia Beach, another one that uh, Jason spoke of. Um, when you do that, and as he said, as you cluster in one area, you, you can take advantage of that you know, shared services model, that economies of scale where all of your restaurants can take advantage of an infrastructure um, that is efficient and cost effective for the business. Uh, And my sixth and final takeaway is that paying for extra team benefits up front has a big payout later on. This was one of the reasons I wanted to speak with Jason. Um, You know, we featured Jason and Michael on our Power List last year for having the big idea. At the time, you know, they were talking about this four-day work week that they were providing. And and Jason kind of got into that um how that benefit works for their team. But it goes far beyond this four-day work week idea to a much more robust package of benefits um, that it offers its team members. Uh, you know, we all have talked about this idea of being an employer of choice. But Jason really got into the details of what that looks like in a way that I appreciated because, you know, for Need, you know, they they have first they have the challenge of, as Jason said, dislodging employees from other restaurant groups. That's hard to do. If people are happy with where they are, they're not going to give your company a look because they don't want to have to make that transition. So you have to appeal to them in a way that gets their attention and makes them want to come over to your team. But then when they get there, you want them to stay. As Jason talked about, turnover is costly. And it's not just, you know, the turnover that costs a lot of money and the training that costs a lot of money. As Jason got into, you know, there's a learning curve for all of your new employees. And that whole learning curve It comes with a cost. Uh, You want to build institutional knowledge with your employees and take advantage of that. As that institutional knowledge grows, it helps you to make more money. And there were some of those little details that were – Really um, I- interesting that Jason pointed out. For example, if you have a team member who knows that, you know, it's only going to be about 20, 30 min- 20 or 30-minute wait for a customer versus somebody new and they say it's an hour, you might lose a guest. If they hear it's going to be an hour, they might walk away. But if somebody's more skilled at understanding kind of the flow of your restaurant and knowing it's probably only going to be 20 or 30 minutes, they'll stay and wait, and you've got that um, you've got that business. So there's a real cost to new employees you want to avoid by providing better benefits for your team. Yes, pay is a part of it, but there's so much more as Jason got into that lifestyle um, expense they offer for their employees. They want them to be have a balanced lifestyle, and they want them to, to be happy. And they found a great uh, package of benefits that can really accomplish that and help to um, build a great team at need that can help them further grow. Those are all my takeaways for today. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please remember to subscribe to Takeaway wherever you listen to podcasts and leave your feedback. You can also email me at sam.ocus at informa.com. Thanks again and have a great week.